Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. 
Imagine this, you're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. So these are the five keys to doing your best work. Um, I would also call them the five keys to thriving, but that's because I see best work and thriving is so intimately linked that they do the same thing. Yeah. Right. And so as a mnemonic, if you're listening, guys, it's I, A, B, C, D, I, A, B, C, D, intention, awareness, boundaries, courage, and discipline. Um, these are the five keys that when you really look at projects that are stuck, what I've noticed mm-hmm. is that it's some combination of a not enough of one of those okay. in the project, right? And I, I'm just going to call out for most of us creative people, it's actually courage and discipline uh-huh. um, that we need a lot more of. And I know I'm an army guy and you're going to think, yeah, that's great for you. But no, seriously, like um, the the discipline to choose a limited number of things that you want to be masterful at, that's a discipline, right? Mm-hmm. And the discipline to set out the goals of doing that and then sort of establishing the boundaries. It takes a little bit of discipline to establish and keep boundaries. Like that's where so much of the magic happens. And I, I think whenever I get a chance to be, you know, that version of you at the party with a, with a novel writer, what mm-hmm. I always want to prompt people is just to think like, you know, take whatever project you're thinking about or maybe that you're stuck. And there's two questions I'd like to ask. One is, what's the smartest next step? And the second is, what's the most courageous next step? I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. Charlie, welcome to the Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Thanks so much for having me back. And I want to start with two other things. One, really appreciated an audience of one. It came out about the time that I was finishing Start Finishing. It's a really great book. And also, thanks so much for your contribution to the book. Um, ah. it, it was just so so on point, man. Yeah. Well, you have a new book out, uh, Start Finishing, which you just alluded to, which we will get into in a lot of detail. But as you know from you know my previous conversations, we almost never start talking about the book. <laughs> and it's interesting because I, I actually don't think we've had you as a guest since we became Unmistakable Creative. For some reason, it, maybe we did. I don't remember for some reason. I know that we definitely had you prior to the rebrand. I'm not sure about that. I think it was 2013 or 2014. So Yeah. Yeah. So... Uh, you know, one of the things that I wanted to start with was where in the world did you grow up and what impacted where you grew up end up having on the choices that you've made with your life and your career and the, the direction your life has taken? Oh, that's such a great question. So I grew up in Fort Smith, Arkansas, which is right on the um, western border of Oklahoma, if you have to place that about midway in the state. So it's about 100,000 people and grew up poor, grew up multiracial. Um, my dad is black and native and my mom is black, is white and native. And um, that created all sorts of different tensions, as one might imagine, because Arkansas in the 80s um, 
was not the kindest place when it comes to some of those dimensions around being around poverty and race. Um, and so that sort of informs a lot of my background, especially of what it means to be included and excluded and what it means to have to struggle harder than others and, and things like that. Um, but I also yeah. was selected um, for gifted and talented programs earlier. And I had one of those fortunate misfortunes in that we were so poor that my mom was teaching in a preschool, but she couldn't mm-hmm. afford daycare for me. And so I actually started daycare. I started preschool a lot earlier than I should have been just sitting in the back of the room, absorbing everything. And so it turns mm-hmm. out that I was actually, you know, learning and picking up language and picking up all the sort of things you would learn way young. And that just set me up to be in some of these programs, being selected for leadership programs and things like that. And so um, in many ways, it's kind of been ahead of my age group or peer group. Um, mm-hmm. And that that maintained for a long time. So um, yeah. the other important thing is I grew up in a military family. So my dad mm-hmm. raised especially his two sons, me and my brother, like we are little soldiers and we would get in trouble. And as opposed to, you know, the sit down talks or as opposed to, you know, um, him getting the belt out, it would be like, give me 20 pushups. So there you are like four <laughs> years old, you know, yeah. in that sort of language and that sort of precision of thought and expectations and things like that. That was just how we grew up. So of course I'm yeah. going to end up in leadership programs. Of course I'm going to end up as a boy scout. And of course I'm going to be an Eagle scout and go to West Point and then, you know, military. So those sort of things, it's this weird sort of thing. I look back on it now that I'm cresting 40 and I'm like, Mm -hmm. there were so many disadvantages that that I started with, but in that struggle, in those disadvantages emerged the things that ultimately made me successful. Mm. So we'll get back to this whole idea of turning disadvantages into advantages, but I want to dig deeper into the the whole mixed race thing. This is something I've, I've always wondered about is when people mix two different cultures, two different races together, uh, <clears throat> what are the dynamics like? Like what part, you know, parts of each parent do you, you know, inherit? Um, what sort of, you know, different views did they have? And, and, you know, like you said, particularly in the eighties where, you know, this wasn't as tolerant because I, I, I had had that in my mind. I had a feeling that that was the case. I wasn't sure that you were, I, I knew that you were mixed race. I just didn't know which mix. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so yeah, I mean, I, I wonder like, you know, what is that dynamic like, you know, between your parents and then of course, you know, for their own parents, like, you know, your grandparents, like what did they you know, how did they perceive this situation? You know, you get, you know, two people who are mixed race getting together at a time when that, you know, it's not as common as it is today. Yeah. I I think what I want to start with is I get super frustrated when we try to um, encapsulate a race or peoples in sort of a monolithic culture. Right. And so when you look at say black folk, black folk who live in the South, are, it's a different culture. It's a different narrative than sort of black folk who live in the Pacific Northwest, which is where I currently live. And so I at least want to start with saying that it's going to depend on your region and it's going to depend upon the time. Again, 1980s is a really important thing. In my yeah. particular context, um, you know, my dad, um, who presents as black and, and considers himself black, even though he has native blood, that's a whole other conversation, right? His family um, accepted my white mother but it was still one of those, she's an outsider that has become an insider, which is different than her being an insider, like for the entire life or because she's, you know, she doesn't get invited to the, to the cookout. Cause she's already at the cookout. 
(laughs) you know? Um, And so that was, that was a big tension in there. And so, you know, we had, unfortunately, I think a lot of unproductive conversations about race and stereotypes between my mom Mm. and dad talking about, about it. But the thing about, you know, when you really look at racism in a broad sort of complex version, like people can be, and we don't like talking about this, but people can be racist or they can have bias against their own race. Right. Oh, it's, yeah, it, yeah, I mean, we, we don't talk about that nearly as much as we should. Right. Right. Um, and I so mean, I, you talk to any Indian person, they'll be like, yeah, Indians are cheap. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Like, and all Indians will be like, well, that stereotype kind of exists because we've seen evidence of it. Yeah. Even though it's not necessarily unanimously true. Yeah, absolutely. And so you get that. So, you know, just the narratives we had about race. And so over on my mom's side, my, father or my my maternal grandfather was actually um at least half cherokee we think cherokee um and my maternal grandmother was irish and um but even though there was that sort of thing my maternal grandmother ended up being rather racist and very explicit about it um towards my dad um and so you know in in the total context, what it, what mixed people like me will often feel, or I, I won't speak for other mixed people, I'll speak for myself here. Um, yeah. I felt like I was an outsider no matter what I did, because neither mm-hmm. race, you know, especially in the South, because there's really only like black folks, right? At the time, uh-huh. there's like white people, black people, and then everybody else, right? <laughs> um, and so, in the whole one drop rule legacy and things like that, like you were either white or you were black. Well, here you have this mixed kid who's neither, but both. Mm-hmm. Right. And so you're always sort of walking this line with sort of black culture. Like, are you black enough? Are you (laughs) are you sort of like presenting as black, but you're really not black? Are you Uh too black? Like, you know, are you like so you're always sort of being that and you can get ejected from sort of blackness like that card could be taken away from you pretty quickly. Right. And then on the sort of the white side of things, it's like, obviously, with your skin in the South, you cannot be white. Right. Um, and it ends up in really weird things because even at the time with all the sort of nerdy academic stuff that I was doing, given the way, the way that sort of micro society was set up, all of my friends were white, Mm. which means all of my sort of dating pool were also white. Right. (laughs) So for me to like actually date a black girl and marry a black Uh girl, I would have had to leave my friend and peer group. To specifically seek out, you know, someone that's not in that. And that's just not the way that we date and mate, you know? And so the legacy of that is, again, I'm 40 years old. Um, I'm Mm -hmm. very much into um, equality and advancing. Um, Well, I I won't go into that yet unless we go there. But at the same time, there's just oddity. It's like, but yo, you're white. your, Your wife is white. And I'm like, one... Let's really unpack what you're saying to me. <laughs> and two, let's look at this context where, you know, for me, you know, I live in Portland, Oregon right now. Portland's got a lot of great yeah. things going on, but massive diversity, not so much. <laughs> yeah, and, I would and say so, so. And so it's the same sort of thing when I, I'm like, how do I only have like two or three black friends? But yeah. it still goes with what audience am I in? What What's my context for my work? And Serena, you both, you and I both know like, the path of authorship is not one that's like really rich in diversity. Um, um, I'm looking at my wall of fame right now that, you know, I have frame prints of all the people that I've, many of the people I've interviewed on my wall. Yeah. 
uh, only one of them is not Caucasian. Yeah, <laughs> that I'm looking at it, which is really strange. You know, now that you mentioned, it, I, I never have noticed that before. And it's funny that you say that because even in the process of writing my previous book, uh, you know, my agent uh, was a woman, uh, is a woman. Uh, my writing coach is a woman, and my editor is a woman. And we went through the first, you know, draft and we submitted it. And there was a section where, you know, because I mean, you you know, the sort of nonfiction book structure of, hey, make your point and support it with examples is kind of, you know, constantly what you're going through. And I, I remember we got the first round of comments back and my editor, Stephanie, says, she's like, do you realize that every single example that you gave in this section is a white male? Mm-hmm. And I, what struck me as so funny about that is, you know, we're back to that whole idea of bias. I said, how is it the two women and an Indian guy completely overlooked that yeah um i because i knew about that going into start finishing mm-hmm. i selectively like if you look at the um the epilogues if you look at everything i was like i'm not doing that right there are yeah. plenty of great thinkers there are plenty of other folks that i don't need to be another person talking like frontlining my book with peter drucker I don't need yeah. another, to be another person with Stephen Covey. There's nothing wrong with Peter Drucker, Stephen Covey, and all the rest. I'm not saying that at all, but it goes back to our, you know, w- one of our previous conversations, um, maybe in the green room, was like, what am I doing? I've got this moment with this book yeah. to showcase different thinkers and to showcase mm-hmm. a, sp- a, a perspective of thought, which is one of the reasons I ask for contributions, right? Uh-huh. And it's like, I'm going to take that moment and be super intentional about it so that maybe the next person that writes a book can see like, Oh, wait a second. Like there's an example of someone that does that. And it's, it actually gets even worse Randy, because nominally my book is in sort of the productivity shelf. Mm-hmm. Um, right now there are like three, like non-white, non, non-male people who write about productivity. <laughs> you know, it's, it's a really small set of folks that, yeah. that write, you know, that, that are going to be on the bookshelf. And there, there may be a lot of self-published books, nothing wrong with that. But if you go to Barnes and Noble, you look at how this game is structured, it's a really small group of folks. Um, and so, yeah, it, it ended up in this sort of weird thing. And so going back to my previous point, it's like the, the advantage of growing up mixed in the South is that you learn how to be a social chameleon, uh, excuse me, a mm-hmm. social chameleon, yeah. how to blend in with different people, how to present, how to do all those types of things. It's a coping mechanism. It's a negotiation tactic. It's all those sort of things. And so you can sort of swim in any audience and be fine with it. You know, the military helps with that as well. Um, mm-hmm. But at the same time, there's also, for me, that sadness when I walk into the room and it confirms that yet again, I'm one of three out of 300 people. You know, yeah. um, it's, it, gets, it gets old. So it's funny because I think that if you look at the history of black people in America, which, you know, we had a lot of people here, particularly recently, like Desiree Attaway. Mm-hmm. Um, a guy named uh, Chris Wilson, who you know had this amazing story about the the books that saved his life while he was in prison, and, and you know we talked about this extensively. We had you know Sean Dove here, who runs the campaign for Black Male Achievement, like you know some really really extraordinary people and and stories that I honestly had never really heard. But understanding you know sort of where they're they're coming from and how the communities that they are brought up in are, are you know like they they are out of the gate with a lot of disadvantages. And so I think about this, you know, from two perspectives, right? Because like, you know, you look at the sort of stereotype of Indians minus the the comedic act of, you know, oh, yeah, 7-Elevens, motels and, and, you know, being cheap. The other stereotype is, oh, these guys are the ones who run Silicon Valley, you know, (laughs) like they're the doctors and engineers and, and, you know, all of that. Uh, And so the the reason, you know, I, I mentioned this is 
it's funny because I, you know, I myself never really have, have thought about race in that way. This is the example that came to my mind. And I wanted to ask you about this. And I, I may have mentioned this on the air before. So for, forgive me for those of you who heard this, but given what we're talking about, uh, I did a TEDx talk uh, sometime, you know, probably two, three years ago, like right around the time Unmistakable came out, you know, we needed to get video of me speaking. And, and so uh, I did a TEDx talk. And I remember the first uh, slide deck that I did for, for this TEDx talk. And I get feedback from the Speakers Bureau that they're upset, not upset, but concerned because all the pictures uh, of the kids that were in my speakers talk were all white. I was like, well, doesn't it matter that it was an Indian guy on stage? Who cares if kids in the slides are white? But it's weird because I would have never, like, that just never crossed my mind to Mm -hmm. think about that. And, you know, I I wonder, like, you know, like, I I just wanted to kind of, you know, air this out with you because we're on the subject. Yeah, so I completely get that. Um, and especially, it, I think it's part of our age group because mm-hmm. we went, we grew up in sort of that colorblind race. People like, I don't see color, I see people sort of scenario, which, yeah. and there are many, you, there are many reasons we accept that. And especially if you're coming from, I don't, I don't know what the immigrant status is of your parents and things like that, but yeah. sort of the thing is you want to, assimilate and not be different as, as much as possible. And you don't want to treat people differently because you don't want to be treated differently. Right. Mm-hmm. And so yeah. we sort of grew up in that pocket to where in many ways we were discouraged from talking about it, from saying mm-hmm. like, yo, why is, why are this picture? Why, why does your screen full of white people when it mm-hmm. could be full of other people? You're talking about the human experience, not just a monolithic white experience. Right. Um, yeah. But we weren't, that wasn't a conversation that was happening in the eighties. Right. I, I don't, I, it took me until my mid early twenties to really realize yeah. the rich history of black intellectualism that exists mm-hmm. in our nation simply because I couldn't walk into a library in Arkansas and find, you know, six books of James Baldwin, or I may have been able to find it, but I had to be able to find that myself pre-internet, yeah. right. Mm-hmm. Pre-internet. <laughs> so yeah. Um, where I am now is like, if you go to productive flourish and you look at some of our lead vendors, you look at our products, you look at them like, yo, we are not going to continue this thing where we're not thinking about who's on these graphics. We can find just as many, if we're going to use the stock photo, mm-hmm. find the stock photo of a person of color. Yeah. If we're going to use that, if we're going to be talking about an, a subject that seems to be so like dude, bro, let's find an appropriate picture of a woman. And, mm-hmm. and and include her in this conversation because frankly, you know, the productivity conversation is so masculine <laughs> to start with, yeah. right? And so dominated by men. This is where I love people's work like Laura Vanderkam and Neen mm-hmm. James and folks like that because they're bringing yeah. in this for the rest of the population who, for good reasons, don't really give a crap about 17 ways to hack a shoebox. Like that's not <laughs> right. really... That's not really what they're interested in because they're doing yeah. other things that our society is placed on. So anyways, so I'm just intentional about that now. I'm not demanding that other people do that, but yeah. I, I'm sort of actively thinking about how do we create the world that we want to see? Yeah. And part of that is we, I feel like I have a responsibility and a privilege and an opportunity to, you know, if the medium is the message and we marketers get to present the world a certain way, like let's take advantage mm. of that and present the world closer to how it actually is than just continuing this innocent, um, innocent, unconscious way of presenting the status quo. 
Yeah. I, you know, it's funny. I appreciate that so much because I think you're, you echo in a lot of ways, my own purpose and mission with what we do here. I mean, the sheer diversity of, of voices and views that we try to bring in. And we are always looking for that constantly. It, it's, you know, I think it was funny because <laughs> I remember my friend Erica Learmark once I, I told her, I said, you know, every time I have a female guest, the downloads go up. And she said, yeah, of course they do. She's like, because we talk to each other and we're more social. And I remember I said, great, let's do an entire month where we feature nothing but female guests. And we did. Mm-hmm. And she basically filled that pipeline and our audience grew a lot <laughs> during that time. Uh, and, you know, it's funny because I've been meaning to do that again. But yeah, I mean, I, I think that was one of those things that we we always made a point to try to balance it out, you know, from gender, from race and, and mix it up as much as possible. Yeah. And I would also throw in like, you know, I know part of unmistakable, unmistakable creative is about entrepreneurship. But the other thing mm-hmm. that I, that I try to do on, on our podcast, productive flourishing, I'll just sort of seed this if I may, Srini, and yeah, I know you please. do it, but just let's focus on stories of people in the struggle or maybe focus of, you know, stories of failure. Like let's tell the, like the real entrepreneurial experience as yeah. opposed to just what's on fast company and ink and what's in startup. <laughs> right. Um, because yeah. we know that's at best 3% and right. it's, not the type of bootstrapping, creative hustling that many of yeah. us are out to, uh, out, you know, out and about. So that's the other thing is like, let's show yeah. this, this Absolutely. full diversity there. Yeah. I think that, that that's, you know, one thing that was, you know, uh, that became very important to me at a point, at a certain point, it was to give voice to things that I felt needed a bigger voice. You know, it's funny. I, there's a guy who gave a Ted talk who was an ex MS 13 gang member. Unfortunately, I haven't gotten a response from him. And I was like, for the love of God, I'm like, please come and talk to us. I really want to hear your story. Uh, he has a TED talk and I was like, oh my God, like, this is amazing. I need to, to, to talk to this guy. Uh, you know, and, and the thing is it's, it's giving voice to things that may not have a voice. Whereas, you know, what you see on the covers of magazines, it's like, okay, do they really need any more coverage? <laughs> you know, it, it's, that is one of those things where it's like, oh, for them, it's just a nice to have because they're already in a situation where that's going to happen regardless. Uh, one thing that, you know, I, I wonder <clears throat> is how old were you when you started to recognize these racial dynamics because, you know, having grown up in Texas, you know, I kind of have an idea of what your sort of childhood is like. And mm-hmm. I think that there was a time when I would not have said that I was proud to be Indian. And then it went to like the opposite extreme. By the time I got to college, I found that, you know, in a place like Berkeley, because you had such huge populations of every ethnicity, it was very easy to be ethnocentric and gravitate towards your own kind. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, um, I was six or eight years old. Um, I actually wrote about this on Medium a couple of years ago, and then I got out of the I got out of the public conversation about politics and sort of race at that time um, mm-hmm. because of 2016, and that might be another conversation. <laughs> um, yeah, but it was really um, I'm trying to make a long story very short here. My middle oldest sister um, would when she would come down to visit, she's my half sister, um, and even at those days, she'd be like, "Are you black or are you white?" you know, posing that to a six or eight years old and, and like it had to choose. And so what I told her then I was just smart enough to say like, neither and both. That's all I like. That's it. That's what I got for you. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, and that wasn't the right answer. Cause at the time I felt now, you know, I haven't had a conversation, adult conversations with her about that, but that's neither here nor there. But at the time <laughs> I sort of felt like I was being asked to choose which of the two arcs I was going to go along um and sort of choose and claim that identity and i'm again i can't speak for other people's experience but my sort of relationship with my own racial identity is one like just like people can be gender fluid um mm-hmm. i think i can be racially fluid in the sense that sometimes like i did in this i'll say i'm multiracial and sort of that depends yeah. upon 
what it is. And then other times I'm just straight up black, you know? Um, but when I wake up in the morning and I know some people of color have that, right. Where they wake up in the morning, they look in the mirror and they see that person. Like you might see an Indian person. You might see that being reflected back to you. I don't, it's not Mm -hmm. until I walk outside and Mm -hmm. I realize the broader social context, like, Oh yeah, I need to remember that I'm a black man in this world and orient as such. And when I write online, like that's a part of my conscience. Cause when I'm in a public space, like identity, especially when you're talking about racial gender and, you know, sort of these types of identities, they're socially maintained things. Yeah. And, and so it's like much like you might not call your partner by your pet names that you call her in the house. Right. When, once you leave, like you, you don't necessarily with new people use those pet names in public, but there's no agreement. You don't consciously say, you know, I'm not going to call her Pookie when I'm out at dinner. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, you just don't. And so it's that same sort of thing. Like you step into that context, that public sphere, and yeah. you recognize that double consciousness of your race. Um, yeah. And it gets even trickier because again, if I'm going in public and I might be going to something to support people of color, I'm like, Oh, in this context, I've got to do even myself. I've got to do some code switching um, yeah. to, you know, to be, I, I would say to be myself, but I would say a different version of myself than I was before I walked into that room. Wow. Wow. Um, well, let's do this. Speaking of walking into the room, uh, you know, I, I think I do want to spend a little bit of time talking about your military background because I think it is actually such a perfect segue into the content in the book. Uh, talk to me about how your time in the military has informed and shaped the work that you do today and, and who you've become after you came out. And in addition to that, uh, what for those of us who are not on the front lines, uh, who pretty much all we see is basically a government who spends too much money on war, like, you know, I, I saying this as a, you know, Berkeley graduate liberal hippie, uh, what do I, what am I misunderstanding? Cause you've been in the front lines, you've been there in a way that I never will. Yeah. So you want me to answer the latter one? The, the we'll second question the first. Let's start with okay. the latter first. Cause that's, that's a broader sort of military question. Yeah, what you're missing is um, a a lot in the sense of um, yes, the government. Well, here's what I'll say: I agree with you. Government does spend too much money fighting wars that we don't need to be in and doing things we don't need to. And in my perspective, not spending enough money in places we actually need to be, mm-hmm. right? Um, and that's a whole sort of geopolitical military conversation there. Yeah. Um, but I think you're missing. Um, people who truly sign up because they want to make their country better. They want to contribute more so than just paying taxes and voting to mm-hmm. the preservation of this nation that they love. Yeah. And um, so I, you know, it's one of the reasons I joined, I actually joined the national guard and then got activated and federalized and became a U.S. army soldier, which that's, that's a whole different thing. But you know, my whole thing was like this place that I live, I love And I want to be a part of its endurance and prosperity and defense if need be. I Mm -hmm. I grew up in Arkansas. It's in Tornado Alley. I joined the National Guard because I'm like, you know, tornadoes are going to come. Floods are going to happen. And I want to be one of the people moving sandbags and driving people and, you know, all those types of things. And people who join the active duty military, like I want to be one of those people who can look back at my life and say I contributed in that way. Okay. So, but the other thing that you have to sort of think about, and many people who are haven't been big in sports don't get this, is you end up, in my view, 
Serena, I'll send you a link about this um, because you might find it interesting because I did try to explain this in this post. You end up in this pre-industrial society or in a a society that operates on pre-industrial codes where everybody counts. Mm -hmm. Everybody has everybody's back. You live with folks. You eat with folks. You work with folks. It's a 24-7 lived immersive experience and you develop really tight bonds with the people around you, even if they're temporary. Yeah. and it's super hard to go back into a very isolated, a very um, individualistic, mm-hmm. a very unfocused civilian society yeah. and cope with that because you're used to, like when I deployed, um, his name is Eric McCoy. Love, um, love Cheese Mac. Anyways, um, Eric McCoy, he's a lieutenant with me, stayed in the same tent. And it's one of those things. And I'll, I'll just tell a little micro story here. Like we would, Get off duty. We had we had similar duty shifts, and we would play Halo, the original Halo on the original <laughs> Xbox for like three or four hours on stupid hard mode. Half yeah. the time, the damn Xbox would die because it would get sand and overheat, and so we'd have to start that whole checkpoint all over again. But then the next morning, we, so we'd go to bed about the same time after just hanging out. The next morning, we would get up at about the same time because we lived in a damn tent with each other. We'd get up grab all of our shower stuff, walk down, take a shower with each other, walk back, walk back to chow hall, then walk back to our duty stations at lunch. We'd find each other, go to lunch, then come back. Right. And then, you know, after we had that final meal, we would go back and we'd start that all over again. Yeah. You do that for a year. Right. And you develop these really tight bonds. You talk about everything and there's just so many unsaid things. And what I really say, especially about men, because Mm -hmm. of the ways that we socialize men, you can't have that relationship outside of environments like that. And I find that there's a deep longing amongst us men and that's a sort of thriving men to have those sort of tight bonds. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, but agree. the thing is we redeployed dude yeah. lived, Eric lived less than a quarter mile away from me. Wow. Right. He lived less than a quarter mile away from me, which is about as far as we would walk for our duty stations anyways. Yeah. Immediately. Once that happened, I started seeing him once every two weeks, once every four weeks, once every six weeks, because we had our lives, we had everything going on, but we both had that sort of like, hey, when are we getting together? And so, you know, you have to re-acclimatize to being in normal civilian life, and then you got your partners, you got your jobs, you got your work, and you're yeah. like, but but what about that buddy routine that I had where we were just so in the pocket together, mm-hmm. right? And yeah. so there's that aspect that I think a lot of civilians don't get is that's what like the politics and all the bullshit. Like it's there, you know, that that's in there when you're in there, but it's the people that keep you there. And it's that culture and that sense of service where you're just like, this is what I meant to do. I can't imagine doing anything else. And also I'm really good at it because they've Mm -hmm. trained me to be really good at it. And I have one thing to do, Serenity. Like I, as an officer, I had like one major job. Everything else was covered. I didn't have to be this generalist doing all the things that I got to do as an entrepreneur. Right. So super focused, hard but focused. So there's all those sort of things that I think you miss that sense of service, that sense of belonging, that sense of community, fraternity, um, that sense of mastery that it's just so hard to get in. Oh, one last thing. Yeah. The skill tree, right? You knew what you needed to do to get that next promotion. Mm-hmm. You knew what courses you need to take. You knew what staff positions you needed. You knew what you knew how to check those block into advance in a way that Serena, it took me like three or four years to sort of think like, wait a second. I may not be sort of training for the expert infantry badge anymore, but I can create that same sort of thing for my business. Why not? 
right? And I can use that if I want to be there. Here's what I need to have in place and use that to, to backwards. Because once you enter the no man's land of entrepreneurship and once your business sort of takes a certain point, like yeah. there's just an infinity of choices and you can choose any of them and you don't know where the hell you're going, right? Absolutely. So it's probably more than you wanted on that, but there's just so no, much. No, no, that is that is fantastic. You know, it, it's I I was fortunate enough to get to do a talk with a, a, a nonprofit that trains retired special forces guys how to transition into civilian careers. One of our listeners runs this amazing group called the Station Foundation, mm-hmm. and it's funny because I think the thing that struck me the most about what they were struggling with with this transition was exactly what you just said that this sense of community that they had built, like, you know, I have a friend, Brian Ferguson, who's, you know, surfer, snowboarder. And he said, he said, once you go through that experience of SEAL training together, he said, it's just, you go into a workplace and the bonds are like, they just, you know, they seem like pathetic in comparison. Uh, He's like, it's just not possible to recreate that. And he said, and that is often one of the biggest challenges of transitioning back to civilian life. It absolutely, I mean, just, and you know, there's, hmm. The other thing I would say is the type of relationships where like if we were buddies in the military and you were doing something that wasn't you weren't doing your best or you were morally slipping or things like that. Yeah. There's a very quick conversation about that. Right. Like and, you know, depends upon how radio friendly we want to make this podcast. But Uh it'd be like, Serenity, you're slipping up. Fix it. (laughs) Right. (laughs) That's it. Yeah, that's it. And like, dude, I know, like, I know that I'm, I'm not like, I, you know, and, and just fix it. Don't care. Don't have time for the drama. Fix it yesterday. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's like, got it. And then people can start changing. So I think there's also this culture of excellence, both personal. Well, I mentioned the professional, but also personal excellence. And, yeah. you know, unfortunately, people, I think, see soldiers as sort of dumb trigger pullers. And like, why would any reasonably smart person do that sort of whatnot? But when you really look at it as a more broad thing, some of the smartest people you will ever met, I'm not putting myself in that group, but I'm just saying other folks like are in the military. Oh, yeah. I mean, right? we've had some of those guests, people like Chris Fussell, who's, you know, wrote, wrote the book with Stanley McChrystal. I mean, it was, yeah, I mean, some of those people are brilliant. Brilliant and know more about the world than most people. Like, I'm still trained, Serena. We're, we're hanging out here more than you probably wanted, but I'm still trained. That when I see news, especially geopolitical news, I mm-hmm. can start to think about the regional aspects of what's going on there, the geopolitical footprint, the strategy wow. being on. So like whole thing going on with Turkey, I can't turn that off to start thinking about, oh, um, in case you didn't know, Turkey got some anti-aircraft missiles um, that's really made NATO um, concerned and made the United States pissed off because it exposes vulnerabilities of the F-35 fighter jet. Now, why does that matter? Because... Turkey historically is a geopolitical hotbed in, in things. And so I can't not see that. Right. right? But there, and I'm 10 years out of being this mm-hmm. being, you know, being an officer, but there are people that are looking at that every day. They're reading foreign affairs. They're reading BBC. They're watching Al Jazeera. They're looking at policies coming down. They're deep in, deep involved, deeply involved in, you know, um, DOD strategy and U S strategy. And so, um, yes, there's these, a lot of folks with heart. Yes, there's a lot of folks out there just getting it done. But also some of our smartest, most creative people are actually in the Department of Defense. Yeah. Well, um, I've basically, you know, rattled your ear off for a good you know, 30 minutes without letting you talk about your book. So, um, you know, I, I think that, but I, I think it actually was a perfect setup for it, given that, you know, like I said, once I realized the military background, suddenly everything about the way this, the way you see all of this makes uh, a lot of sense. Uh, 
What 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 prompted this book? Like of all the books you could write, why this one? Um, because so many of us creative people love talking about big ideas and strategy and you know the vision of the future, and we struggle with the same damn thing about getting stuff done. Like we yeah. have the ideas and we can't get it done, and. So, so many people were keep coming to me. Like, I want to be able to do these big ideas. I want to be able to push them forward. Mm-hmm. And I want to, you know, let's talk about strategy. And I'm like, honestly, I don't think you need to talk about strategy. I think you need to talk about execution, right? <laughs> I think you need to talk about getting it done, right? Yeah. Because if you, if you show up to me today and you're 120% overcommitted, mm-hmm. I can't add anything to that. Like, wow, let's talk about getting you down to 80%. So maybe we can add something to it. But it was just one of those things where people kept wanting to go over the stuff around it. And, and more importantly than that, though, I think people miss the connection between thriving mm-hmm. and doing what matters most. Yeah. Right. And a lot of people are frustrated and yearning because we get to the end of the week or the month or the quarter or the year. And you're like, I've been that rocking chair. That's a lot of motion but no progress. And I'm frustrated. Right. Yeah. And so we only have, as far as we know, like this one short life to live. And I want us to take the full advantage of it, which means there's just a lot of stuff that we have to kick off the plate and say, you know what, this is the thing that I'm going to do. And that terrifies, frustrates, and um, really mm, angers a lot of creative folks because they don't mm-hmm. want to make that choice. But by not making that choice, they're also choosing not to thrive in a really significant way. Yeah. Um, I think that, you know, one of the things that, that, that struck me was you opened this book, the book about this idea of living in a project world and you, you basically describe projects as mirrors and bridges. And then you also talked about this sort of three to five year, you know, sort of reinvention that constantly occurs. Can you go into more detail about that? Yeah. So project world is just basically um, the idea that we live in three to five year time slices professionally and personally. So it takes us three to five years to find someone that we actually think we might want to marry and then marry them. That could be a chair. Then we have kids that, you know, go through different stages in about three to five years, moving across country, going to school. We have just a series of projects that are three to five years long. Then professionally, we have similarly, like you take a job, your first three to five years of that job, you're sort of in one position, then hopefully you move on to another position. Maybe you take another job. Project world is just the idea that that is the norm. We no longer live in what I call career world. Where, you know, you go to college and then you work at a company for 20, 25 years. They give you a pin. You move to Florida um, and retire and play golf for the rest of your life. Like that world arguably never existed, but at least that was the myth. No one I know that's our age or younger thinks that we're going to retire at the same company we start working at. Like, it's just, what? Like, and I only get to work at one company, by the way. Mm -hmm. Anyways. um, And so the grace of Project World is that... When we're so gripped with, you know, are we making the rest, the best choice about, you know, what type of person I want to be when I grow up? It sort of loosens that up and says, you know, you're really just making a choice for the next three to five years of your life. And whether you fail, guess what? It's going to be three to five years. If you succeed, it's going to be three to five years and you'll move on to something else. Right. Um, That's the grace of it. But the down, the the sort of downside of it is that you got to ship. You got to, by ship, I mean, taking whatever ideas that you have, turning mm-hmm. them into something that's useful for other people, some yep. sort of marketplace, whether the marketplace or your colleagues, marketplace like the consumer marketplace or whatever, you got to ship because you can't say, well, I've been spending three to five years sort of working on this thing, but I don't have anything really to show you. 
right? Mm-hmm. You immediately like lose credit. Like no one's going to hire you. It's like, so you, you've been working on this three to five years and you can't like show me any result. You can't show me any deliverable. You can't show me what, how you made the world different right. and better in that time. Uh-huh. Like that, you can't do it, you know? Well, it's funny you uh, say that. Sorry. Go ahead. Uh, go ahead. Uh, I, I was at a party once and, uh, you know, some girl tells me that she's been working on a novel for three to five years, like really smart girl. And I'm thinking to myself, wait a minute, you've been working on this for three to five years in a vacuum. And I was like, why is it taking three to five years? And she said, you know, you can't just sit down and write. <laughs> and, you know, I remember uh, you, you, my content strategist, King Shook, he says to me, he's like, yeah, you're the wrong person to say that to. And absolutely. Did, yeah. And, and I look at her and I'm like, okay, I know I've just met this person, but whatever. I was like, that is complete bullshit. <laughs> it was totally obnoxious and rude. And then I, I, I thought back to this Stephen King quote. He said, you know, if you want to be a writer, your days as a member of polite society are numbered anyways. Uh, yeah. But yeah, that, that's why I, I, you know, it's funny you said that, but to, back to you, mirrors and bridges. Yeah. So projects are mirrors because they reflect what's going on internally and what's going on in your world. And, you know, when I wrote the book, I really wanted people to latch on to one idea and sort of work through the strategies, insights, and practices mm-hmm. with that one idea. Yeah. Because if you choose a project that really matters with you, matters to you, and you actually follow the process, a bunch of stuff is going to come up, man. Uh-huh. Like all of your self-doubts, all of your sort of inner critic, all yeah. of this, what I call head trash is going to come up. But only if you hang on to that project, because what we too often do, Serenity, and you've experienced this too, is like when it gets hard, we bail to the next thing mm-hmm. until it gets hard. And then we bail to the next thing. And so <laughs> um, like like when you bail to the next project, you're yeah. automatically going to figure out something that you hadn't figured out any other one. Like you can't run away from yourself mm-hmm. because you're always going to be there. Yeah. And so the mirrors, because if you choose the right project, it's going to reflect what's going on internally and externally. Mm-hmm. And they're bridges because they build the world that you want to be in, right? Yeah. Um, that that future, like, so we created people, we have this really tentative relationship with reality. Mm-hmm. Because on the one hand, we realize we have to operate within the constraints of reality as we know them now. Mm-hmm. But we're always creating that new matrix of possibilities that become the reality, become mm-hmm. the next reality. Yeah. And so we have to do use projects as bridges. And so whether that's, you know creating a kick-ass podcast, like unmistakable creative, whether that's, you know, starting a nonprofit, like you got to do the work to create that new reality mm-hmm. because ideas by themselves do yeah. not create a new reality. Well, they I don't, mean, I, I think, you know, what prompted you to reach out to me was that piece that I, I wrote either on Facebook or, or on a blog, I put it in both places. I was like, nobody gives a shit what you're going to start. And yet, you know, you look at your Facebook newsfeed. I mean, every day there are announcements of all the things that, uh, people are going to start. But, uh, you know, one of the things that, uh, you know, I I wanted to reference this, uh, you know, Sam Altman is a president of Y Combinator, has a blog that he occasionally writes on. And when he does, it's always just stellar. There's something that, you know, we're talking about projects and this has stayed with me all week long. And I keep thinking about it because, you know, he, he says that I always, you know, he said, I'm willing to take as much time as needed between projects to find my next thing. But I always want it to be a project that if successful, will make the rest of my career look like a footnote. Mm-hmm. It, you know, and, and, you know, and of course, you know, being the president of Y Combinator, maybe that's a, that's a luxury you have when you're, you know, that well off or, or whatever it is. But I, I just, I wonder as somebody who has written a book about sort of projects, how do you think about, I mean, what is your response to that? Like, how do you think about what that, what Sam says in that post? 
Yeah, I need to back up real quick, but then yeah. I'll answer that. Um, sure. To me, a project is anything that, requ- that requires time, energy, and, and attention to complete. Mm-hmm. Now, the reason I want to make it super broad like that is because so often when we're talking about projects and productivity and getting stuff done, we're just looking at economic work. Yeah. Right? We're not looking at the sort of what we might want to call life or personal work of mm-hmm. raising kids and, and building better communities and you know being a secretary at your church or whatever that might be. I also count that as a project. I also yeah. count that as work worth doing. And so I say that um, just because I think part of what we what we think about when we're when we're thinking about sort of project world is what's my next career focus, and that mm-hmm. becomes what we look at as opposed to what type of human do I most want to be in the world, yeah. and what are the projects that manifest that human. Mm-hmm. Um, I think making your previous work a footnote is, is challenging, but what I would say is, what are you working on that's going to matter two years from now? Yeah, right. What are you going to work on on five years from now, ten years from now? Right. Because I think, you know, one of my coaching questions when I when people are curious about working with me is like, you know, let's imagine that it's the end of a year or it's, you know, 12 months from now. Right. Let's say that we can only be celebrating three things. Mm-hmm. You know, we're, we're kicking back beers or whatever it is. What are those three things? And you only get those three things. Mm-hmm. Right. Because it focuses what you have done, or what you focus on. Like, so how do we structure your days? How do we structure your work? How do we structure your projects so that we get those three? Because yeah. if we don't. What we're going to get to is a year from now, we're going to be talking about all the stuff that you're maybe working on or thinking yeah. about, but not the stuff you've done. Right? right. And so that's, that's the sort of guiding perspective that I want to give people. And when I talk mm-hmm. a little bit about, you know, choosing projects and I, I got this from Stuart Brand. Yeah. Who, I saw that. But I got it by way of Kevin Kelly, by way of <laughs> uh, Tim Ferriss. So it's, well, it's a I long chain here. That. It, well, it's funny because that was one of my, that was sort of my next question was, okay, I wanted to ask you about the Stuart Brand quote. And I was like, okay, could I write a blog post about this? But apparently not. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. 
Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this, you're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with tap to pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Um, You probably could write a blog, but I don't know. Um, but, of course, but yeah. Yeah, you have to find it. Um, but the basic idea, Stuart Brand said, you know, I mean, a significant project is going to take at least five years to see, to see through. Now he wrote that well after I'd been talking about Project World for a few years. So um. And but when I saw it, I was like, yes, Stuart Brand is the founder of the Long Now Project, which tries to imagine where humanity is going to be in 10,000 years, mm. right? And making decisions for the 10,000 year perspective, because really long thinking, really thinking about where we're going. And so, um, you know, sort of captured that and it's like, okay, so l- I'm going to take you up on that, Stuart. Let's go one step further. Let's subtract your age from 85, right? Then divide that by five. Mm-hmm. That's as many that's as many significant projects as you can have for the rest of your life. So I might have nine. Yeah. Right. That's all I can do. Um, unless I really get busy and maybe like for me, you know, I'm on my second book, my first real full length book. I know folks that are shipping them out every year and things like that. But I know for me, with the way I have my life set up, a book is a is one of those five year projects. Mm-hmm. Right. I don't like it, but that's just the reality of it. I gotta yeah. get I gotta choose to do something else so that it's not a major project. But you know, whether it's that business, whether it's that nonprofit, whether it's your kids, like you only have so many projects left. And and this really, I think this is one of those things that as I've talked to people about it, uh-huh. there's, there's a, like a knot in their stomach. It feels like the world is just pressing on their chest. Like, oh my God, I only have nine things left to do. But I'm saying, yeah. let's accept that as a premise. Does the work that you're working on now merit being one of those nine things? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And if not, why Maybe switch it up. What what does need to be on it? Yeah. Well, I think that that you know it's funny. I didn't want to get to this yet, but you you mentioned what you call the five projects rule, and I was, I was looking kind of you know I, I use Notion to manage all of my projects, and and I was looking at it, and I thought, yeah, you know what? I I know very clearly like we're planning an event that is happening in February or in April of 2020. Um, there's the podcast, 
And then there's, you know, sort of ancillary stuff around the podcast, like our animated shorts and all of that. And then there's writing. And I'm like, okay, you know mm-hmm. what? Like, like it's funny because I remember somebody once, Glenn Beck, actually, of all people told me, he said, you, know, you think of it as like a hub and spoke model, your podcast, the radio is the hub. Everything else is basically spokes. And, you know, and I thought about it. And I, it's funny because I, I di- started diving back into Scott Belsky's action method because I was looking for a quote and I ended up rereading the entire book. And then, you know, mm-hmm. it's funny because now I'm like, okay, I can cobble pieces of your system and his together in a way that works for me. But it's, it's like when I looked at it, I thought, okay, you know what? Yeah, there, there are probably three projects here. It's a lot easier to move each one forward when you're not working on that many of them. Although I have one project that I've been stuck on. So we'll, we'll get to that because I want to see what advice you have for me. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. So go back. Let's so go to just- five projects rule. So five projects rule. So the really nerdy way that only I will say is it's really no more than five active projects per time perspective. Mm. So let me sort of cash that out. So what Serena, you just mentioned, you have at the year long perspective or the yearly per- perspective, you have three, mm-hmm. right? Three major projects. Yeah. And then we'll talk about the, the one that's probably in a tar pit, but we'll come back to that. Yeah. Um, now we can also say this month, what are your three major three to five major month size projects? And mm. in the work that I've done, Serena, like Though we can get around, we can get wrapped in the axles around whether it's 23 hours or whether it's 28 hours, you know, something like that. Like most people intuitively know mm-hmm. what a month size project looks and feels like, yeah. right? About how far they can get in a month. Even though we're terrible at estimating how long something takes, even though it always takes longer than we think it's going to take, we still sort of know intuitively the difference between a month size project and a week mm-hmm. size project, Right. And so that per time slot or per time perspective just says, you know what, when you're doing your monthly planning and you're sort of thinking about what matters most for this month, don't think about all of the, you know, chores, all of the little nits and nets. Just go back to that same sort of question I ask is like at the end of this month, what are the no more than five projects that I want to make significant progress on? And how do I chunk them down mm-hmm. such that I can say I shipped something or I sh- you can show your work or there's some meaningful piece of that. So it just helps with that chunking, but it really helps with two other things besides that, right? Prioritization, mm-hmm. because again, it goes down like, is whatever you're working on, would you choose for that to be one of your five projects? Yeah. If not, why not? Right. What do you need to do about that? But it, I think it also helps us be more human with ourselves mm-hmm. because when we have that feeling like, man, I'm just, I'm not getting it done. I'm not good enough. There's something wrong with me or like, what, why is this taking so long? You're like, oh, I've been carrying eight projects. And remember, projects are anything that require time, energy, and attention, which means like moving, getting married, going on that vacation. Like I wrote a post the other day about like why the summer is surprisingly so busy for people. Uh Right. And because we have this mindset that even that work slows down. Right. Right. And we're going to the summer. But what people don't think about is for many of them, kids come home. And kids create their own projects, right? They take on, they take up some of them five projects, right? And getting them from school, yeah, right. Getting them, sorry, getting them transitioned into summer mode, and then getting them to all the camps and all the things that they might do, or figuring out babysitters, and then getting them back to school. Like in my lexicon, those all count as projects. Yeah. So that means most parents go into August or early September, and guess what? They don't have five project slots they can choose. They yeah. have at most four. Yeah. <laughs> because getting the kids reacclimating is a project. 
I love that. I, I love that you broke it down like that. And it's funny because I, I was thinking about this and I was like, okay, you know what? Like I'm, I'm actually looking at Notion right now as we're speaking just to kind of see. And I was like, okay, you know what? I have it set up into, you know, sort of I've categorized it by un- the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, which basically is all the content related to this, whether it's, um, you know, blog posts, animation, you know, newsletters, all that lives under one project. And then I have a section called Special Projects where it's, you know, speaking engagements, uh, you know, uh, the the conference we're planning and then you know the project that's in the pit uh which we'll get to in a second <laughs> but um so i think there's one other thing about this you know you, you brought up the the five project rule i think that there were these five keys that you highlighted at the very beginning of the book intention awareness boundaries courage and discipline can you take us there and, and you know explain to us the role that they play in a project yeah, so these are the five keys to doing your best work. Um, I would also call them the five keys to thriving, but that's because I see best work and thriving is so intimately linked that they do the same thing. Yeah. Right. And so as a mnemonic, if you're listening, guys, it's I A B C D. I A B C D. Intention, awareness, boundaries, courage, and discipline. Um, these are the five keys that when you really look at projects that are stuck, what I've noticed mm-hmm. is that it's some combination of a not enough of one of those in the project. Right. And uh, I'm just going to call out for most of us creative people. It's actually courage and discipline Uh um, that we need a lot more of. And I know I'm an army guy and you're going to think, yeah, that's great for you. But no, seriously, like um, the, the discipline to choose a limited number of things that you want to be masterful at, that's a discipline, right? Mm -hmm. And the discipline to set out the goals of doing that and then sort of establishing the boundaries. It takes a little bit of discipline to establish and keep boundaries. Like that's where so much of the magic happens. And I, I think whenever I get a chance to be, you know, that version of you at the party with a, with a novel writer, what Mm -hmm. I always want to prompt people is just to think like, you know, take whatever project you're thinking about, or maybe that you're stuck. And there's two questions I'd like to ask. One is, what's the smartest next step? And the second is, what's the most courageous next step? <laughs> that's a lot more polite than saying that's complete bullshit. Hey, man, we, we talked about why I got, why I got to do it that way, right? Um, I'm serious, though, because like, I have a military brand and people like, you know, they yeah. hold that. If, if I say something super hard, people are like, man, he yelled at me when he said it was bullshit. And I was like, Srini said the same thing. It's just he's surfer, bro. Right. And <laughs> but if I say it, I'm a drill sergeant. What the hell, man? Uh, um, but, but anyway, so I asked those two questions because mm-hmm. um, it turns out that the smartest next step is almost always the most courageous next step. Mm. Um, because no one changes the world, whether you want to think about that big or small, by just taking smart moves. Like you got to introduce yeah. some courage there. And so when in my own work, in my own practice, I, you know, at the end of the day, I'm like, how many courage points did I put on the board today? Right. I don't care how smart I am. Right. It comes down to how much, how much I actually leaned out there and did something that made me super uncomfortable. Hmm. So those are the five keys, you know, I'm sorry, I sort of got off on that. Those, those five keys, when you look at the project that you're stuck, do you have the intention? Like, do you know what you want? Do you have a strong feeling about where you want that to go? Awareness is, do you really know what's going on with that project, with yourself, with your context? Boundaries are, have you set up the right positive and negative boundaries that allow you to focus on that thing and keep other things out? Courage Mm -hmm. is, are you actually showing up and making those unsafe but long-term smarter choices? And Mm -hmm. discipline is, are you following through? And then one thing I'm going to say here, this is a kind of aside, but so many people get stuck. Because they confuse their desire for certainty with their desire with their desire for clarity, 
right? And I just bring this up because so many people are like, well, I'm going to wait till I get clear about what my what I should be doing. Yeah. And when you really ask a few questions underneath, what they're really saying is, I'm not sure that this is going to work. And I'm mm-hmm. going to wait until I find a pathway that I'm pretty sure is going to work before I move. That's a different conversation than yeah. whether you know, um, you're clear about it. Cause a lot of times when it comes to the projects that matter most, I call those best work projects. It's clear what you need to do. Mm -hmm. It's uncertain whether it's going to be successful. Yeah. And people conflate the two of them and get themselves stuck. Interesting. So, uh, I'll, I'll walk you through the pit. The project we say is in the pit. Um, so I, you know, I'm not a person who has trouble shipping, you know, that, Mm -hmm. Yep. you know, my work, you know, when I tell you I will get you something, you'll get it. When I say you'll get it, mm-hmm. uh, so you know, audience of one came out. I'd already started mapping out, uh, you know, proposal for my next book. Like literally the day I submitted the manuscript, I'd already, I think even before that, I already started mapping this out. I was like, okay, and we went through okay so we went through a dozen revisions like you know my my agent would send it back with comments i would go to you know um the guy that i hired to help me with the book proposal we would shape it some more then we'd send it back and i think i was the last round of comments that i got and i let it sit you know i I went and reviewed it i let it sit for a month and i I just and no matter how much i you know I, i would i would open it up and i would look at it and then so i don't know what it was like i think i finally got to the point where i was like okay you know what i need to just open this thing every day and just at least, you know, give it a read to see if something comes to me. But it's the first time that I ever, and I think it was partially because we had gone through so many revisions and I didn't have to do any of this the first time I got a book deal. Mm-hmm. And I was getting really frustrated because I was like, it's been nine months. And, mm-hmm. you know, and and it's, you know, I think the other part of it is that there is literally no guarantee that it will lead to a book deal. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, so... <laughs> How do I get unstuck using what you've you've talked about here? And what do you notice about what I'm saying that so far based on our conversation is the issue? Um part of it may be a discipline piece piece. Like what what I tagged on was there at the end when you said this is the first time that I've had to do this much. I'm reinterpreting. This is the first yeah. time I've had to work so hard to get this done. Right. Mm-hmm. With all the commentary and feedback, so on and so forth. Right. So I'd say yeah. that there's there's probably something there. Mm-hmm. Um let me I'll ask three, three questions real quick. Okay. Do you want the outcome of the project, whatever that might be? You mean the finished book or the book? The finished the book, whatever you think that's going to do. Like, do you want the finished? Do you want to be at the end destination? Yeah, I do. Okay. Um, so that's great. Two, mm-hmm. what do you think you're going to have to give up to get there? it's so this is kind of funny for me so like when i look at the discipline issue i i kind of wonder if it's a discipline about working on this one thing because you know i wake up and i write every day it's just that i don't write this you know <laughs> yeah that, and that's where i'm kind of like where is the conflict going on here like is it a discipline of of I'm, I'm, that's why i don't necessarily agree that it's a discipline issue i think it's something else okay um so i'm going to approach this this way like we don't need um, an accountability buddy or a productivity system to eat ice cream. Yeah. Right. Or to have sex. Um, sure. like those are things we want to do. We, there's instant feedback. There's all sorts of reasons why we want to do those things. Right. Mm. And so when people start procrastinating to put off projects, I'm try. I always try to find where there's a misalignment. Right. Mm. And so my first question was really like, is there a misalignment between what you actually want and the goal? Right. And it doesn't yeah. seem that there is. Right. 
Um, the second misalignment is we often tell ourselves some version of a no-win scenario. And I'm trying to figure mm-hmm. out what your no-win scenario might be. But sometimes it, it has the formula of to do X, I had to give up Y that means something that, that really matters to me. Right? That's the story that we, that we sort of propagate. And then we yeah. won't do X because we don't want to let go of Y. Right? And so I think if we were to hang out there, I think for you, what it is, is for me to finish this book, I have to give up the flexibility of writing whatever the hell I want to write about and instead focus that time on writing on this book. Yeah. Um, and so I, I lose my ability to go with the flow and surf the creative wave and, and, uh, and just be out there swimming laps. And I don't want to do that. Like I want to be surfing the creative wave right now. Yeah. Whereas this is, I have to sit here belaboring, looking at this thing, you know, resisting the temptation to throw my laptop against the wall and let it shatter into a million pieces. Yeah. But this is apparently not uncommon. Like I, I was talking to Cal about this and he was like, you spend nine months on this. He's like, you don't, don't, he's like, you know, you're apparently this is very common among first time authors who get their book deals because you get known for this one thing you've done and you're kind of like, okay, cool. And now you're having to basically sort of reinvent yourself and and show that, Hey, wait a minute, I can do this again and I can do it in a different way. Yeah. Well, and that's the sort of third no win scenario that I write about in the book is that like yeah. the, what if I can't do it again trap, right? Uh-huh. What, yeah. what if I got this book deal and I had this creative muse and it was great and it did what it did, but what if I can't do that again? Like, mm-hmm. or what if my next book isn't as good as my first book? Or what if my next book is better than my first book? What's that say about my first? Like we tell ourselves all sorts of stories like that, that, yeah. you know, it's the thrashing that I talk about in the book, right? The thrashing uh-huh. is the meta work and the flailing that you do around the work, but it's not actually pushing the work forward. It's just yeah. a bunch of emotional labor that doesn't get you anywhere, right? And so I would say just based upon this project, I think you probably have that, that no-win scenario of like you have to give up something that important, that's important to you. And the mm-hmm. second one of like, what if I can't do it again? Or, yeah. um, you know, what, what if the magic doesn't come together? And I think as I've been thinking about, it, I've worked with a lot of authors here, Serenity, and we yeah. all have different creative pulses. And unfortunately uh-huh. we try to put ourselves in some other pulse that may not be our own. I mean, I mentioned earlier that I'm a once, a, once every five years book guy. Well, I yeah. might be a once every three years book guy, because I know for me, that's just the pace at which things accrete and incubate and sort of come yeah. together that I feel like I have the book. And if I tried to do that every year, I would, it would, it feels like, you know, a Brazilian jujitsu match with a spider monkey where I will lose right. half of them, like, at least <laughs> half of the matches. Right. Yeah. Because I just don't have, I, I don't have that strong backbone of a body of work or a solid idea that gets me up. And, and I worked with another client on this and um, you actually know who yeah. he is. And he hit this pit, in the writing part of the pro uh, in sort of the drafting part. So mm. I'll, I'll pay, I'll focus this. Like when we look at creative projects, um, there are different phases of it. Like there's that first 20% that some people really gig about like get, get in on and some people t- it terrifies them. And then there's yeah. the last 20% where you like you, you run out of creative room and you have to start like finishing the house that you've built instead of keep adding more and more rooms to it. Right. And then there's that middle 60%, right? Where you still have a lot of room to play and you got, you're not looking at the white screen, but we all struggle in different places and different reasons with those sort of things. Right. Yeah. And so this other guy I was talking about, um, he reached a point to where he lost the magic. Sometimes it's called the golden thread that keeps mm-hmm. you in that work. And I just straight up told him, I was like, you can sit down every day to write this book. And this doesn't counter contradict what you told home girl at the party. Right. But I said, the reason you sit down 
is so that you find that golden thread again. You find that magic again, because if you can't find it, you're not going to finish this book. But Mm -hmm. it's not necessarily going to come to you in the way that you think it's going to. It's not like one day you're like, I'm going to take a week off. And then a week later, you're going to feel like writing. Um, Usually what happens is you get pissed off because (laughs) you're about to get laughed by somebody else writing what you think is your book. Uh And then you're like, oh, oh, crap, I got to get to it. (laughs) Right. And so it's like, it doesn't have to be painful, but that discipline of sitting there and finding the magic, finding the curiosity, finding the golden thread, you know, Mm -hmm. um, to, you know, sort of riff off your book, create yourself as the own audience of one and get back Mm -hmm. to it. If you can't do that, you're not going to finish the book, but you have to create those conditions. Those conditions do not happen on their own. Does that help? Yeah, that helps tremendously. I mean, it's it's funny because even the, the first major breakthrough I had on the book came when I spent, you know, uh, a month and a half, almost a month in India, just kind of hanging out with family. And I, I was still writing every day. I woke up and I did this. It was kind of like, okay, so I'm writing at this point with no idea where any of this is leading. But bit by bit, it all just started coming together, you know, to get past the next hurdle. And then, of course, you know, the next hurdle basically came here recently, which was this latest round. And I was like, okay, you know what? Um, I have, you know, it's like, I got other fish to fry right now too. And that was kind of like, okay, you know what? I I need to to go in and deal with, you know, other, you know, it's like, okay, you know what? I want to work on growing the podcast just as much. But like I said, I mean, I've limited it down to three projects. This is the one that I can't get myself to, to really push it as much as I can on all the others. Um, but enough about me. I, I want to, you know, I think we, we use that as an example mainly because, uh, it was gave us something concrete, but there's another part of this that you mentioned, and I want to, tackle it from a, you know, a different angle. So you talk about smart goals, but I think that the way that you actually went about this is very different than I've ever heard it explained. Uh, I think the, the, the things that struck me were you talking about finish and start dates, which I thought, you know what, I'm like, I should do that. I should actually put finish and start dates on things. So let's start there. Yeah. Finish and start dates. I, I, I think we do ourselves not enough favors when it comes to finish dates, but there's some power to those start dates. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and so Obviously, I don't have to explain what start and finish dates are, but the reason they're so powerful is because it uh, creates space for us to finish what we're already working on mm-hmm. and to not put the additional pressure. Um, and so to say, you know, hey, I'm going to start this project on August 13th, yeah. right? You can start to sequence everything else up around like, okay, I've got to finish this. I've got to clear the deck. I got to get rid of this other project that I got because I don't have any room for this one. Mm-hmm. Um and when you commit to start dates, especially publicly, right, or to people who are in what I call your success pack, it yeah. also creates that new slice of time. It's like the difference between when you've been just sort of dating someone or you've been sort of co-living with someone for a long time versus mm-hmm. when you propose marriage, yeah. right? There's a, there's a date that happens when you get married that's a shift in that relationship, right? Mm-hmm. And I think putting start dates on projects creates that sort of thing. And just from a pure logistical perspective, if you look at whatever system you use to track start dates and you see, wait a second, I'm starting 17 things that week. Maybe you can make some better choices about that. Like I'm not going to finish 17 things that week. I'm going to finish three to five, right? So how am I going to deconflict and how I'm going to sequence that? And it just mm-hmm. helps you avoid some of those cascades at the same time that it helps you avoid things remaining in someday, maybe land forever. Um, just because you have to like move the date and you have to talk about it and so on and so forth. So, Start dates, super, super powerful. Now, the trick here is um, I'm all about chunking projects down into human understandable things. So I just talked about Mm -hmm. that with the five projects rule. So I wouldn't say, you know, if we're talking, uh, actually, I really loved hanging out with your book project. Um, Mm Serena, 
because uh, I love the grip of it. So I'm just going to hang out there until you tell me to let it go. But okay. um, instead of saying like start the book on August oh, yeah. 13th, right? It would be create the table of contents or uh-huh. to start, you know, the research list or however you start your project. It would be that small yeah. enough chunk that when that day came, it wouldn't be like, oh man, I got to start the book and what am I doing? And I, well, all the stuff is like, can you start the lit review or can or not? Can you yeah. start the table of content or not? Is it something you can do in a focus block, 90 to uh-huh. 120 minutes where you focus on it or not? Right. And I think we that's the gift of really displacement, i.e., that that sense of we only have so much time, energy, and attention, is mm-hmm. that when we chunk things down to match the time perspective that we have, we can yeah. look at it on a given day and say, Do I have time to start my table of contents? Mm-hmm. Yes or no. Right. And if you don't, then you don't necessarily have to beat yourself up. Like you can say, yeah. no, I don't, but I'm going to move this other thing. Right. I want people to go into really black and white. Yes or no questions or yes or mm-hmm. no answers to some of these. Do I have time or not? Yes. No. Yeah. If, if no, then I can do X. Cause I, you know, I look at it probably that military background. It's just, it's an obstacle. We got to go over around under or through. There's only four ways to get around an obstacle here. Right. Mm-hmm. Which of those are you going to do? Instead of just looking at the obstacle and being like, you know what? Not, not even going to think about it. I'm going to walk away because you know what? <laughs> the next time you come to it, it's still going to be there. Yeah. Um, and not only will the obstacle be there, your story about that obstacle will have grown. Like that dragon, mm-hmm. I like to call those obstacle dragons. That dragon gets bigger and, and, and more lethal and more and scarier the more that it can just sit over there on the side and grow and accrete. And it's not the dragon that's done anything. It's your story about it. Right. Yeah. It's, it's funny you say that, you know, so I mentioned to you, we're planning this conference in April and it's funny because that is literally the approach that I was taking. Cause I, I realized I was like, okay, there's probably like 200 things that I have to do. And I literally have boiled it down to the simplest like things. It's like send an email to the speakers to confirm, connect Stripe to the website for the thing. And it was like one little thing every day. And I thought about it. I was like, okay, you know what? This is going to take like two or 300 to-do lists, but I have until April. So like, you know, it's like, okay, what can I do today to move this thing forward? And I realized it never, it, it, it almost like most days so far, like we've written, you know, the website, we've connected MailChimp, we've confirmed with all the speakers, all of that happened over about three weeks. You know, it was like we picked a, a, a location, you know, all that. And it was and when I looked at it, I was like, oh, wow, I'm just doing one small thing every day. Absolutely. Absolutely. And this is, you know, when you look at your best work projects, those are ones that are going to take multiple quarters to see through. Mm-hmm. And this is where sort of that discipline and those boundaries. And that's why you have to keep coming back to it, because, you know, if it's just a weak size project, like just pure inspiration and, you know, caffeine and a little bit of creativity can get you through that project that week. Right. Yeah. But you can't do that for 37 weeks. Right. And well, I mean, some people can, but it's super hard to do that. Right. Of just fuel and, and you know, ca- caffeine, inspiration and a little bit of intelligence. Like you can't do that. You got to st- structure it in the way that we're talking about and um, create those boundaries and create those plans and take those steps. But any work that matters is just a series of small steps. It's like that Henry Ford statement, like, you know, nothing. What is it? Um, Oh, I don't know what you're talking about. (laughs) There's, there's one, I'm not going to butcher it, but to make a point, like anything, everything is just a series of small steps, right? Mm -hmm. Whether it's, you know, that, you know, 12 mile ruck march where you've got the backpack on, you've got your machine gun, you're, you're going like it's step by step by step, leg by leg by leg. That's on the military side of things. If you're 
exercising, dieting, doing creative work. It's really step by step. And Serena, I laugh about this because you know how there are some people whose work is sort of Instagram friendly. Yeah. Like they can go out and they do all the sort of things. Like if you really look at my work, it's it would look like a lot of sitting at the coffee shop writing. Like it's so unsexy, uh-huh. right? When you think about what it actually takes to to finish books and do work, it's like <laughs> yeah. a lot of a lot of sitting there looking at a damn screen. Like that, yeah. who gives a crap? Who I'm going to? Uh, of course, I might be able to write about the beautiful environment that I'm in. Yeah, or excuse me, a post about it. But I'm like, that's not interesting. Like what I want people to really embrace is the beauty and sacredness of the work they're doing when it's their best work and sort of mm-hmm. embrace that thrashing, that difficulty, that, that Brazilian jujitsu and know, you know, Serena, there were so many times where I was writing this and I wrote this on an alpha smart Neo. So you'll just have to Google it. Right. But it's like a 1990s, late 1990s word processor with an LCD screen, five, you know, five lines, no internet, anything like that. And I, there were so parts of writing this book that were so challenging for me that I, and, and because I'm a writer, Serena, you'll know what I mean here. I can hear the space between a paragraph when I'm drafting. There's there's a there's a there's a hear there's a feeling you know that there's something there and if I was writing on a modern laptop with access to all the things, I know that I would be off chasing what's on YouTube or seeing seeing what Srini's doing or what's on Twitter, what's on the email, like any of that actually matters. Mm-hmm. But I would do it anyways because that's where I would feel that tug. I would, I would I would hear that space. Yeah. But on the Neo, I was like, I can't do any of that. So my options are, do I want to quit writing or am I going to continue writing? Mm. Um, and most of the time it was, you know, sort of channeling Liz Gilbert on this one. Go back in. Yeah. No matter how difficult it was, go back in. Like take a few more knots, do a few more roll arounds with the spider monkey. Right. Until something came out. Right. But I knew that I had to set that up because otherwise when it got hard, I'd be like, you know what? This is hard right now. I'm going to go see what my team needs me to do um, as opposed to doing the thing that my team really needed me to do, which was finish the damn book. So I think the the two other things that really struck me when you you got into smart goals were you you talked about these three types of successes. Now, is that what we're talking about when we're finishing these small things like moderate, small and epic? Or is that uh, a different or is that are we talking about outcomes there? Talking more about outcomes when it comes to the three levels of success. And so those three levels were epic success, or if you're not a millennial, you can say extreme. It's all good. Yeah. Right. Um, moderate success and small success. Now, um, the thing about it is, is moderate success is that level of success where you're great about it, but it's the furthest that you can take yourself or you can take that project by yourself. Mm-hmm. And the reason I wanted to talk about levels of success is because we too often either aren't clear about what level of success we're after or we're not matching the level of success we're after with the level of effort that we're putting in. Yeah. Um, and so too many people want epic results, but they're not putting in epic effort. And very rarely does that actually pan out for folks, right? And so the grace here, and again, so much of my work is about choosing from the beginning what game you're playing. So that as you're playing that game, you don't beat yourself up because you think you should be playing another game. Like, no, this is the game that you chose. Yeah. It's it's like completely great to choose a small success on something, right? It's like, that's what you want to do. Maybe it's a practice project. Maybe it's just something you want to do, but you know what? The results, the results don't matter nearly as much as you just finishing the damn thing. Small success is great. Moderate success is great too. What I will tell people is if you want epic success and I'll just use a book example, like if you want to hit the book, the bestseller list, you've got to put in, some you know epic level effort to match that and you can't 
achieve epic success by yourself. If mm-hmm. whatever success that you've generated could have been done, could have been generated just by yourself, at yeah. best, it's moderate success. At best. Yeah. But you've got to build a pack. You've got to build people around you to have success at the level. You know, and Epic is like that Oprah moment. Like I know she's no longer yeah. on the air, but like, you know, you get that call and it's like, I'm gonna be on the Oprah show. Like that level, you know, where no matter what you're doing, you pick up the phone and call your mama. That sort of scenario. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that doesn't happen on its own. It happens after a combination of really, you know, using the five keys I mentioned earlier, um, being super intentional about where you're trying to go and building a pack of people around you to help get you there. Yeah. Yeah. I I mean, it's, you know, you don't build SpaceX by just being Elon Musk. Like it's an army of people that makes that happen. I I think that, you know, it, you know, I I talked to Justine Musk about this whole epic or, you know, what we call what she calls extreme success, right? Where we're talking Mm -hmm. like Richard Branson, Elon, you know, Jeff Bezos level and there are a lot of interesting things about that conversation. Uh, one of which, you know, she said one, she's like, I don't think people really understand how much work goes into these kinds of accomplishments. And she said, I also don't think they see that these things usually come at the cost of everything else in your life. Like if this is what you want, there is a price to it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, I'm, I want to be careful here yeah. because, um, we, there are so many stories that we hang on to around the valor of the struggle, the mm-hmm. valid, the valor of it being hard. And why I want to be careful here is because it, when you're already prone for perfectionism, when you're already prone for certain types of ways of excellence, unfortunately you'll choose things. You'll choose to do things in ways that make it harder than it needs to be mm-hmm. because there's value in the, in the difficulty. Right. Yeah. Um, and at the same time, the level of long, like decades long, multiple decades long focus that it takes to accrue the type of success that you're talking about there. Yeah, it does wear on relationships. Yeah, mm-hmm. it does wear on bodies. It wears on souls and, and things like that. So I think there's an and there that I want to say, like, yes, it's going to require you to be incredibly disciplined. It's going to require you to have a lot of boundaries, a lot of courage, a lot of things like that. Yeah. And just be careful that you're not reading more into the difficulty of the struggle mm-hmm. and you're not sort of lionizing that difficulty because otherwise your life is going to be unnecessarily hard. Yeah. Wow. So you've alluded to the, the success packs uh, multiple times. We haven't actually gotten into where they are and you break it down into four groups of people, guides, peers, supporters, and beneficiaries. So can you define who those are, who, who those people are and what role they each play? Sure. Guides are people who are at a level of mastery and a level of character that um, can inform your project that you can ask questions. So these are your Yodas, your Gandalfs, your Morpheuses, right? Um, that really um, can guide the project. But the thing about it is guides can be incredibly frustrating because they say cryptic things like use the force or, you know, <laughs> be yourself. And you're like, what the hell does that mean? Yeah. Like it, it never is apparent what they're saying until that particular moment. Right. So mm-hmm. if you're into Joseph Campbell, there's sort of that, that sage that gives you that thing that you need, but you often don't understand it when you first get it. Mm-hmm. Um, and they don't work in the projects with you. Right. So, you know, your guide is probably not going to unlock the doors that you think that guide is going to unlock. Right. Um, and so, but guides are really important because their main job is to shift your worldview and the way you see the world just enough that you can get out of the holes that you crawl into that you crawl into and keep yourself mm-hmm. into. 
Yeah. Which I'm going to pause here because oftentimes we don't realize because of blind spots and because of all sorts of other head trash that we have, yeah. we don't realize the degree to which we're keeping ourselves in the hole that we're complaining about being stuck in. Right. And your guides are, are those people that, that basically point out, it's like, you know, you have what you need to get out of that hole if mm-hmm. you use it. Yeah. If you don't want to use it, maybe there's something about hang, hanging on and hanging out in that hole that's really important to you. So it's, you know, it's, this is so weird. I, I mean, I think maybe I just noticed patterns because these are things that are going on in my own life. But uh, I had a mentor who was, you know, everybody who was, has listened to the show has heard he's been a guest on the podcast. He came up with the name on Unmistakable Creative, um, Greg Hartle. And I, I remember we had a year that was amazing. And then that was followed by a very, very difficult year. Uh, you know, he was, you know, very ill, like basically given a, a nine, you know, nine month to live period. Fortunately, he's still alive. But, you know, I was going through a personally rough patch during that. And he, I mean, he hammered me. I mean, it was one of those periods of, you know, just beating on me endlessly. And, you know, and I, and I thought, this is just so frustrating. I'm like, I'm, you know, sad, I'm depressed, like, you know, I had a breakup, whatever. And I think what he was really doing was drilling into me this idea of real mental toughness because, you know, so that when the stakes were higher, I wouldn't end up in that same situation again. And and I realized how, it, and it, literally, it's been I think four or five years since you know we worked, I'd worked together with him in any capacity, and that came full circle just a few weeks ago, um, when I had a disappointing experience in my personal life, and and you know I thought you know what I don't have the luxury of not being on my game here, and I realized I was like wow that's a lesson from almost five years ago. Absolutely, and you couldn't have understood it at that time. No, I, I saw it as a mentor who was being cruel. Yeah. Um, and so mentors and guides have that sort of way. Um, I'm, I'm super fortunate, you know, having gone through the military experience that drill sergeants are often those first guides yeah. that hammer all sorts of stuff into you that just it irritates you. But then, you know, sort of my military experience is the same way. Like right now when things are super hard, I'm like, I'm not getting shot at today. Mm-hmm. You know, that's an, that's like, I'm going to live today. Um, and unless something really freaky happens, I've been in situations where that hasn't always been clear. And so whatever I'm going through right, right now, like at least I'm not getting shot at, it's difficult, but I can and will get through this, um, uh, which is such a different perspective than like the, Oh, it's super hard right now. I don't know what I'm going to do. Am I going to make it? Of course you're going to freaking make it right. Mm-hmm. Um, it might not look the way, but yeah, mentors have mentors and guides have that sort of aspect on, on that. And what's important I mentioned character there because there are all sorts of ways that people achieve certain types of results that may not be in alignment with who you are mm-hmm. and following someone, you putting them as a guide when you have that character dissonance yeah. is only going to make your life worse. Um, so find people that whose character and integrity you, you can respect and use them as guides as opposed to people who you're always going to be like, yeah, but they're saying this, but, is that really true? Like, do I have to do what they're, what they're telling me to do? Like that doesn't feel right for me. Yeah. All right. So, so there's a the guide. Peers are people that are about your same level of accomplishment, the same level of perspective. These are people that you can ask, you know, sort of as you're going, these, these might be your co-coaches. These might be your co-mentors. These might be your mastermind buddies. It could be that friend that you meet with every once in a while and talk about how things are going and get feedback on. Um, but you can reasonably expect them to have good perspective on your project and, and to be involved in different ways, but they're not guides, but they're not supporters either, which supporters are the people mm-hmm. that are actively involved in building the project with you. Could be teammates, mm-hmm. um, professional yeah. teammates, could be the neighbor kid that watches your kids on the weekend so that you can focus on your work on that free Saturday that you've got. Like it can be all sorts of people. It can be your partner. It could be your parents. Um, 
you'd be the librarian, whoever is instrumental in supporting you and be there. And the last one, like if any of the groups of people are more important than others, I would always have to say the beneficiaries. And these are the people who benefit because you've completed your work. Like when you do work in the world, you, there's only one of two things that, that generate sometimes a combination of those. You either solve a problem yeah. or you deliver a delight. Mm. You solve a problem or you deliver a delight for someone. Your beneficiaries are those someones. And why they're so important is like when you get stuck and you're not sure about your project and which way to go, like you can do that, you know, really simple, but sometimes difficult mm-hmm. thing of asking that beneficiary, like, is this working? How, how does this, how does this work for you? Did this do what I was trying to do with it? And you can like have that real conversation and get that feedback from the world and from that person about how you're doing. Second reason is super important is because though people can sometimes give up on themselves, it's really hard to give up on other people and to let other people down. Yeah. And so having a beneficiary who you've told, hey, I'm going to have this thing done in three months. You might be halfway, halfway through this three months and you sort of know at the end of that, that person's going to be expecting you to do that. You said you were going to do that. In some ways, your identity, your integrity is on the line. And sometimes that's just enough to get you, you know, to sit down one more time or to go back in one more time because it's not just about you and what you want to do. It's about this commitment to this other person that you've made. And you know what? At a certain point, don't care about your feelings, right? Mm -hmm. Care about what you're doing, how you're making the world better, um, and what how you're going to look back at that particular project and that relationship and say, you know what? It was hard, but I did the work that mattered. And I'm super proud of that. Hmm. So I think that there are two sort of last pieces of this. Um, you talked about a pre-mortem, which is, is one of those things that, you know, I, I don't think enough people do. And, and I often, you know, look back and like, why the hell didn't we do this? Like we could have prevented this. Uh, and then there's, of course, the aspect of actually mapping it out and you go into chunking and all of that. So can you kind of walk us through both of those, because I think they're both kind of tied together. So a pre-mortem is what we sound like. You you think about all the different ways that your project may go sideways, all the different challenges that may come up. Now, I want to pause here because sometimes people have the idea that like if you speak to a challenge, uh-huh. you make the challenge stronger. Right. Right. Like you assert that it's like it's some sort of self-fulfilling prophecy. Yeah, I, I think that's and, new age bullshit personally, but that's, I, I do too. It's like if I talk about gravity, it makes gravity stronger. No, it yeah, doesn't. Gravity yeah. is going to be there whether you're talking about it. So sure, don't talk about gravity and jump off the building. That's going to yeah. go well for you. Right. And so, but I want to at least put that out there because there's some people like, oh, but I don't want to sort of wallow in all the ways that something can go wrong. I want to look at it more like this. Like, look, Whatever you're like, there, there is a physics of getting stuff done in the sense that there are just forces in the world, internal and external, that are going to weigh in on your project. Yeah. It's just reasonable to say, you know, it's not about me. It's about those forces and how I can overcome those forces so that I could design my project so that they do overcome them. Just like aeronautical engineers have to design planes to overcome drag. They're not like, oh, if we talk about drag, it makes it worse. Like, no, we have to design <laughs> wings that overcome this, right? Yeah. And so I, I, I'm laughing. I mean, we're laughing, but it's a serious thing that can, that can get people tripped up. Mm-hmm. So it's just going through that and then having a proactive response to each one of those. So if you know you're bad at discipline, yeah. right, you can put in st- 
steps. Maybe you need an accountability, Bubby. Maybe mm-hmm. you need to figure out a way that doesn't require you to do discipline or use as much discipline. Maybe you could think about how you make it more like ice cream or sex, right? So that you want to do it, right? Um, so that's the pre-mortem side of things. Mm-hmm. Um, we've mentioned chunking projects in the yeah. sense of always breaking it down into smaller parts um, because I think that's where people get overwhelmed. It's like, you know, I, we started this talking about three to five year like meta projects and like that seems super overwhelming. Mm-hmm. But at a certain point, and I didn't mention this at the time because I was like, oh, that, that may be, that may get us somewhere. But one of the simplest things that we can do for ourselves to make our world easy, make our work easier to do is when you create an action list for yourself, like a today, like a to do list for today, mm-hmm. only list chunks of the project that are relevant for that day or that you know you can get done in a day. Because when you look at people's to do lists, Randy, you'll see like write chapter two. Send an email to John, um, <laughs> yeah. call the IRS, like deposit money, you know, finish backyard project. And it's like, wait a second. So one's like two months, one's a one month project, one's a day long project. And your brain's trying to figure out how to make that work. So it's just as simple sometimes as saying, you know what? Today yeah. is just going to be things that are either, um, I'm super rigid about sort of the focus blocks and sort of the, you know, things like that. But if you just quantize your day mm-hmm. such that it's either a two hour chunk, or a 15 minute task, no. which is sending that email, probably going to be 15 minutes, whether you want to fight me on it or not, right? On average, it's going to be about that long. So you can just look and say, okay, I have six hours of work that I can do today. I can do that in two, two hour chunks. So what does that feel like? And then I can do, I can send maybe, you know, eight emails. Um, and that's your to-do list. So when you look at that task, it's not like, oh crap, how am I going to fit that in? Where am I going to do this? What's the next chunk? Cause you just do what's on the piece of paper because it fits the time perspective that you're looking at. Does that make sense for any? Yeah. That makes all the sense in the world. I mean, I have a thing called daily action steps in my, in my notion and it's, yeah, I mean, there's no question that that makes all the sense in the world because I'm like, okay, what can I realistically do today? And, and that, that is, you know, it's funny because despite how productive I, I, I usually am, I still run And part of the reason I spend so much time, you know exploring these kinds of topics is because like, you know, I am constantly looking for ways to improve my own process. Absolutely. I think we all, I mean, you know, I, I joke with Mike Vardy, um, cause we have a lot of productivity gems. And the fact of the matter is, is at a certain point we're kind of lazy and we yeah. are always looking for how can we get the same amount of work done with less effort? And, um, <laughs> right. it's true, right? This is straight up true. And so even to your point, like when I create my daily list, I won't go too much into this, but like, I know that by 11 o'clock, about 20% yeah. of the things I put on there, I'm just not going to do, right? Mm-hmm. And so I write them in pencil. So I just erase those things. Um, and then, yeah. then I put one well, on what I've actually done. And you're like, why do you do that? It's because I don't need those things I know I'm not going to be able to do to haunt me for the rest of the day. Mm-hmm. Our, the, the game yeah. is already set. I know that, right? So um, just stop committing Ben with it and try to do a little bit better tomorrow. Um, and that's the name of the game here. Well, I think that really kind of makes a perfect place to to bring us full circle and, and wrap up a, a conversation that has been wide ranging and taken us in many different directions, but for, for good reason. I mean, this has been fascinating, eye-opening, insightful. Uh, so I want to finish with my final question, which I know you've heard me ask before. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? Off the top of my head, I'm going to say um, when it's clear how much courage it took to create it. Amazing. Um, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to join us and to share your stories, your insights, and to subject yourself to my questions that had absolutely nothing to do with your book for 30 minutes. Uh, 
Where can people find out more about you, your work, and everything else that you're up to? All right. So you can find out more about me at ProductiveFlourishing.com. And if you're interested in the book, it's at StartFinishingBook.com. You can get a free chapter. It shows a little bit more about what it's about. And by the way, Serini, like the parts where we weren't talking about the book, equally as fun for me. So I appreciate that part of the conversation as much as the latter part. Yeah. I mean, those are some of my favorite parts <laughs> anyway. So, <laughs> you know, and for everybody listening, we'll wrap the show with that. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Unmistakable Creative Podcast. While you were listening, were there any moments you found fascinating, inspiring, instructive, maybe even heartwarming? Can you think of anyone, a friend or a family member who would appreciate this moment? If so, take a second and share today's episode with that one person, because good ideas and messages are meant to be shared. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.